Hello, and thank you for joining us for this virtual policy forum on the Brussels effect, how EU and UK tech policy impacts Americans and American companies. While much of our conversations around tech policy here in the States have focused on various debates in the US on issues like Section 230, data privacy, or competition policy, the reality is one of the many benefits of the internet is the way it has given rise to global connections. America has been a leader in innovation technology and particularly in the internet age. Europe, however, has had a much different approach traditionally than the US when it comes to how to deal with questions of technology policy. In many cases, this has been seen as two conflicting point of views, one that's more regulatory and one that's more permissionless that is part of what has given rise to many of the American companies compared to the number of European tech companies. However, recent European policies like the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, and GDPR have perhaps changed the debate a little bit. Increasingly, American companies may find that they're dealing with significant issues of compliance around these European laws, and they may have spillover effects into US tech policy either via informal elements such as implementation more globally or through the conversations in the policy debate. I'm excited to be joined today by experts on issues related to speech, competition, and other technology policy issues from both sides of the Atlantic to have a discussion on this topic. Additionally, I'm excited to be joined by many of you who are watching us live, and I'd like to remind you that you can submit your questions for the panel either via the webpage, Facebook, and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag Cato Technology. My panelists today include Evelyn Aswad, who's the Herman G. Kaiser Chair in International Law and a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. She's also a member of the Oversight Board. I'm next joined by Matthew Feeney, who is the Head of Tech and Innovation at the Center for Policy Studies. Before joining CPS, Matthew was a scholar here at the Cato Institute, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, City AM, and many others. And then finally, I'm joined by Matt Sinclair, an economist and technology and media consultant, and the author of a recent study on the UK uh, competition policy for the Center for Policy Studies. So to start with, uh, Matt Sinclair, I'm gonna, gonna join to turn to you. As I mentioned, Europe has generally been perceived as having this more regulatory approach to technology policy, but something about these recent actions, such as GDPR, seem to have had more of an impact on Americans and American companies. Can you give us a, a brief rundown of just what are some of these recent tech policy actions in the EU and the UK that the US should be, that Americans in the US should be aware of for how they're impacting American tech companies. So you've got, uh, I think about three categories uh, here. You've got uh, some big measures that are already in place, like the GDPR that really reshapes global data protection, uh, like the uh, New Deal for Consumers, uh, which is doing that for consumer protection, uh, particularly, so particularly for e-commerce platforms. Uh, you've, you've then got two big measures coming in, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, which have been kind of run in parallel through the legislative process. Uh, and then you've got stuff coming down the, down, down, down the, the street, like uh, the AI Act. Those two big measures that are coming in now that are, I think, where the conversation is most active. The Digital Services Act is an online safety measure, but incredibly broad in its ambitions. You're doing everything from um, sort of structuring how platforms have to do notice and action when people uh, believe they've seen illegal content on a platform through to requiring an, you know, platforms to create an online repository uh, of every ad that they, that they run um, through to requiring them to do reports on systemic risks to fundamental rights created by their, by their platforms. The Digital Markets Act may be even more ambitious, requiring interoperability so that you can have Siri on your Android phone, you can have um, a message sent from Signal to WhatsApp, um, requiring huge publication of data um, in, in, about, the, about prices and conditions through the ad tech stack, uh, and requiring 
um, you know, all sorts of um, regulation of the commercial terms that platforms provide to their users, uh, requiring that they show that business users are getting what's called a fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory standard. That's a standard that's often used in utility regulation, like tel telecoms regulation, for example. Um, so this is going to change the digital sector in Europe from being largely a commercial sector to being a regulated um, industry uh, where it's um, how it kind of safeguards its consumers uh, and how it uh, interacts with business users and its commercial terms are subject to an enormous amount of additional scrutiny from particularly the European Commission. Thank you. Matthew, the UK left the EU's regulatory circle via Brexit. We've seen that the UK has also been undertaking several quite significant actions when it comes to the, the future of technology and, and tech policy. Can you tell us a bit more about the UK's tech policy post-Brexit? Has it been more or less regulatory than its counterparts on the continent? And what might proposals like the online safety bill or the DMCC mean for Americans and American companies? Right. Well, it's it's uh, I think worth pointing out uh, that the, the UK is in a very um, some might argue um, an enviable position of dealing with a regular comparatively uh, blank slate uh, when it comes to regulation post Brexit. The prime minister's um, rhetoric uh, has been pretty good on technology. You'll hear time and time again uh, from British ministers and government officials that the UK is a good uh, technology hub. Uh, and there have been a lot of uh, you know, reassuring signs from uh, press releases and white papers and uh, other documents uh, along those lines. Uh, however, uh, I think what a lot of civil servants and government officials found out after Brexit is that deregulation is actually quite difficult. Uh, and there have been numerous attempts to find a way in order for uh, government agencies to uh, find and uh, remove regulations uh, that were in place uh, when the UK was a member of the European Union. Uh, while the uh, British government rhetoric on technology has been good, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, some of the legislation and regulation that has come since Brexit uh, are, are taking the UK in the wrong direction. Uh, the two pieces of legislation I'd highlight, uh, one is the, the online safety bill, which uh, we'll probably talk about later on uh, in the discussion, which uh, I think is uh, definitely going to have a major effect on uh, American companies and will also affect uh, American users of popular internet platforms. Uh, the other is a digital markets uh, piece of legislation that uh, Matt Sinclair uh, wrote a paper on, uh, but that uh, piece of legislation, I think, goes uh, beyond what I think you see in many parts of, of Europe uh, by empowering uh, a regulator to hamper a, a lot of what goes on in pretty vibrant and robust markets. Uh, something else I'll mention is that the, the CMA, the, the British equivalent of, of the FTC, has uh, in the last year issued a number of, of rulings that I think um, ought to concern a lot of Americans and those interested in investing in or working with American companies. Uh, one was uh, telling Facebook that it couldn't acquire Jiffy. Uh, more recently, though, was the uh, CMA's blocking of Microsoft's uh, acquisition of Activision. Uh, that that um, acquisition is being uh, rethought through, and Microsoft has have reproposed it. But something I will mention is that the EU, which the UK left, um, their their competition regulator greenlit uh, that acquisition. So I would say, in summary, that the British government has good reg. Uh, rhetoric when it comes to technology, but the, the legislation that's been proposing uh, should worry Americans and um, those interested in a vibrant uh, global technology sector. Well, as you mentioned, Matthew, I'm sure that several of those proposals will we'll get into a bit more of the specifics in just a bit here. Evelyn, I, I want to turn to you. While oftentimes when we're talking about the impact these proposals may have on companies. We're thinking about terms around formal compliance and the cost, for example, that many companies put out in complying with, with GDPR. But there are also informal elements that may be impacting Americans as well. 
I was wondering if you could tell us how American tech companies have been enlisted to become the enforcers of European norms around speech and particularly around hate speech. Uh, yes, sure. And first, let me start by thanking Cato for hosting this very important event. Um, I'm speaking today in my capacity as a law professor, and I've done um, quite a bit of research on this issue. And uh, to answer your question, two, two examples come to mind. Uh, the first is in 2016, the European Commission, together with Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Microsoft, issued a voluntary code of conduct on countering illegal hate speech online. Uh, that required the removal of any hate speech as it was defined by the EU. Um, since that time, other U.S. companies have joined, uh, including Snapchat. Um, so the definition of hate speech in this voluntary code is tied to actually uh, an EU framework on, on hate speech that applies to nation states. And it starts out defining hate, hate speech, I think, using pretty standard elements, but there are some pretty large exceptions. So it defines hate speech as anything that's public speech that rises to the level of incitement to violence or hatred and um, directed against particular groups. But as you can see, it um, bans not only violence, but uh, speech that incites the feeling of hatred, which is beyond an act of violence or an act of discrimination. Uh, it also bans uh, atrocity denial which really goes beyond the global standard for hate speech, which would only ban uh, atrocity denial where it's linked to near-term harm. And it also allows banning speech, even if it would not disturb the public order and if it would merely be insulting. Um, so the code states that US companies are supposed to be in the lead in fighting this type of hate speech online and that they have to have procedures to receive not notifications that this speech is online and to uh, react uh, within 24 hours to a majority of these uh, notifications. And then the EU publishes reports publicly to see how they're doing. And uh, I think this raises real questions that we should be concerned about and be discussing um, in the US about how voluntary was this code, right? Were these companies pressured into this? Did they face the regulation and therefore entered into these types of voluntary arrangements. Um, should democracies be forced to follow their appropriate legal procedures when regulating speech rather than leaning on private companies? Um, and of course, a law, or excuse me, in this case, a, a voluntary code of conduct that prizes removals in 24 hours can incentivize removals at the cost of um, you know, more judicious examination of the speech that is at stake. So that's that's one example. Another example where U.S. companies have been enlisted to become enforcers of European hate speech norms is um, a law in Germany called the Netz DG law, uh, which took full effect in 2018 and required large social media companies to develop procedures to uh, remove, um, uh, to, sorry, receive complaints about hate, about illegal speech and to remove it within very short time periods. Um, companies that didn't comply faced very big um, monetary fines um, and illegal speech was defined and pegged to the German legal code, penal code, which includes uh, a ban on, for example, blasphemy, um, uh, on insults, uh, etc. So. This law similarly, and now it was the force of law, not a voluntary code of conduct. Um, this law incentivizes removals and privatizes the enforcement of German national law by US private companies. I think these are items that we need to be particularly cognizant of and be discussing, particularly as both the EU definition of hate speech and German national law departs from some basic uh, protections on freedom of expression that the U.S. has espoused at the international uh, level in uh, in UN UN treaty law. So those those would be the two that I'd, I'd put on the table to start our conversation. I know in our conversation later on we'll get into a little bit more of of what are some of those differences in uh, norms both legally and and culturally between the the U.S. and and Europe when it comes to some of these speech questions. Um, 
I want to turn back to kind of the, the global context of this debate we're having. Earlier this week, we saw Senator Cruz send a letter to, to Lena Khan criticizing the FTC's uh, apparent cooperation with EU officials around issues like DMA and DSA that he he mentioned were specifically appearing to target American companies and that non-American companies were not you know, on the same receiving end of regulatory scrutiny from these European laws. Similarly, when it comes to debate about online safety, we've seen this kind of unique dynamic where US policymakers often point to what's going on in the UK or Europe and UK and European policymakers often point to what's going on in states like California and Utah. I was wondering if any of you could speak a bit to how are all of these debates around tech policy and around the potential impact of these laws influencing each other between US, UK and EU policy? And are there any particular areas where we've seen perhaps the, the rise uh, of the European regulatory approach on American companies be more or less concerning for consumers or innovators? We, um, and Matt, if you look I'll, at the, I was to say, I was yeah, to say, I Matt, it, I'll let you go. Yeah, I, think, I think if you look at the proposals that were put out for new competition laws uh, in Congress, they're really strikingly similar to what's being done in Europe. If you just you add up and look across the different bills coming from um, uh, Klobuchar and others, they 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 look like uh, the DMA and DSA to an incredible degree. Um, and so I think that the EU law, clearly there is this process of, of, the, of the EU ex, uh, um, inspiring um, legislation in the EU. At the same time, I think a non-trivial part of why this is happening in Europe at the moment is because there is a sense that a signal has been sent um, from the US administration that this is almost welcome, where in the past they might have pushed back. Uh, so whatever's going on with Senator Cruz, the, I sort of think the message is called more day-to-day -day message that, Europe, that European policymakers think they're getting um, from US representatives and from the US administration, and you know, Lena Khan would be a good example of that, um, is that, the, that, that this is almost welcome uh, in, in the US. And you know, it's not that it's written and says this law applies to US companies, but what it does is it's written saying it applies to companies with this kind of market cap, this number of European use, users, uh, or in the case of uh, the UK, uh, that the, the the regulator will come up with its own with its own broadly its own criteria, its own list of companies. But again, they will be the very largest tech companies, and those are overwhelmingly, not entirely, but overwhelmingly uh, American headquartered. And so I think it, you know it has consequences for for Americans through inspiring U.S. policy, but then also because yeah, this is going to put a huge burden on U.S. tech companies. Again, it's been a huge amount of effort going into complying with these regulations and not into the rest of their work, not into making those services better for U.S. consumers, not into making them more competitive in order to succeed globally. So I do think that there is a significance beyond Europe uh, to what's going on here and how much more uh, draconian this regulation is becoming. Um, Jen, if I might, uh, your, your, your yeah. question prompted me to, to think about uh, what I've seen with uh, online speech legislation. Uh, I think lawmakers across the, the, the Western liberal democratic world um, are understandably oftentimes hesitant to uh, discuss a lot of the uh, online speech proposals they have because they, they uh, don't want to be accused of running a censorship regime or forcing uh, private companies to, to moderate content necessarily. Uh, however, what we've, I've seen with the online safety bill, because it's been in the works for, for years and years at this point, is that some, some lawmakers uh, elsewhere in the world, like America, have grabbed onto some of its ideas and, and run with it and already got almost to the finish line with their own bills before the British have passed the online safety bill. Uh, and you have this interesting dynamic of British and American lawmakers uh, flying across the Atlantic to speak to each other, um, policy advocates from both countries citing each other, saying, well, if, if, you know, if the liberal British are doing this, it can't be that bad. Or here, you know, the, the fact that you'll, you'll have uh, members of the House of Lords, for example, 
uh, talking about what lawmakers in Utah might be proposing suggests that at least in the English speaking world, um, there's a degree of credence you can have if you can point to another country that's doing something along the same lines, or at least issuing those same proposals. Uh, what, what I think shouldn't be forgotten, though, is that um, more authoritarian countries will probably play the same game, which is when they want to crack down on speech in their own countries, they can say, well, this isn't that different to what the British and the Germans, for example, are doing. So, you know, don't, 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 uh, don't freak out. Uh, and that, that would be a disappointing dynamic to have. But some, something that I think is worth keeping on is that because these legislative proposals would affect, as, as Matt said, um, the same collection of mainly American companies, uh, you're finding that, that there's a lot of um, not just cooperation, but, but discussion uh, amongst lawmakers around the world. I want to turn back. To, oh, sorry, Evelyn, sorry. go ahead. Yeah, just, I just wanted to jump in. This this very interesting, you know, conversation has um, caused me to think about three themes that I think are also important for us to put on the table. You know, the issue of of transparency when governments lean on tech companies, whether it's the U.S. government leaning on its own U.S. tech companies to do certain things behind closed doors, or leaning on them uh, in other fora. Um, I think the issue of transparency is extremely important. Um, and, and this is why there's such a push by civil society to, to get tech companies to be transparent about when that happens, but also governments. Um, the second theme is, you know, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas anymore, right? When, when Europe um, passes these types of laws, there are knock-on effects. They become standards that others seek to implement. So with regard to the Nets DG law in Germany that I was talking about, um, uh, a big free speech commentator, Nakob, uh, sorry, Jakob Mashingama, um, noted that uh, within a few years of that law, there were 13 other countries that passed similar laws, uh, five of which are um, countries that uh, Freedom House rates as not free at all. Um, so you can see very quickly how attractive when Western democracies pass laws uh, restricting speech, how quickly that can move to, to other very problematic regimes. And another aspect to the influence these laws have, I think we should be thinking about is many platforms like having global speech rules. So if they have to do something to appease Europe, that becomes sometimes an incentive or one of many incentives for them to make their entire speech rules around the world reach that new kind of lower standard for the protection of speech. And that affects, of course, Americans, but, but really people throughout the world. Thank you. And I kind of want to build on some of what you brought up in your response there, Evelyn, but also really go back to some of what you, you mentioned earlier when discussing how American companies have been enlisted to become the enforcers of some of these European norms around speech. I think oftentimes um, we, we think of the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. as having very similar cultures around a lot of issues like uh, speech or, or legal systems or whatnot, but there are some very unique differences. I know many Americans take heart in the fact that they can perhaps rely on the First Amendment to, to protect them from some of the government and uh, concerns that, that you just raised, for example, Evelyn. But I was wondering if, and I'll, I'll start with with you, can you discuss how the, the US and the European and, and even the kind of global norms from say the UN differ on issues such as, as speech and why that matters? Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've written kind of two articles in this space, one comparing the First Amendment with UN norms on freedom of expression. And, you know, I actually found that they're more similar than one would guess at first in that both systems in order to restrict speech require the regulator to pass a three-part test. The speech must not be improperly vague. It must be, um, uh, the restriction must be to further a legitimate public interest and the burden or restriction on speech must be narrowly tailored. The UN uses the phrase uh, least intrusive means. The US uses the phrase least restrictive means. Um, now, I think people can argue about whether those rules are applied more stringently in the US or UN, and, and that would be a fair argument to have. Um, although I did look at 10 years of UN analysis and interpretation by UN free speech monitors and found them to be quite similar when compared to uh, US cases. 
Um, Europe as a region has a different approach to speech uh, that comes from uh, its regional human rights charter and its regional human rights court. Um, I wrote an article with the former UN free speech expert, um, David Kay, uh, comparing the European regional approach to speech to the UN uh, approach. And we found that again, while Europe applies that same three-part test, it does so in the, in the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights in a way that is much uh, less rigorous uh, than in the US or UN system. So for example, um, words that would be viewed as improperly vague in the UN or US system would pass the test in before the European court. Um, the legitimate public interests are more vast in the European system. So for example, banning blasphemy is considered an appropriate legitimate public interest in the European court jurisprudence, but is not in the UN system. Uh, with regard to narrow tailoring, um, the, the court only applies a proportionality test where it balances various factors and does not enforce a least restrictive means test, which certainly um, narrows the occasions in which speech bans are permissible. So I did find these, these quite significant uh, differences. And I think it matters because um, we end up with US companies being pressured, whether through voluntary codes of conduct or through national legislation to do things that are inconsistent with the UN's global minimum standards for protecting freedom of expression. Um, and I think that's a big problem, particularly when you think some people conflate UN global standards with you know, regional or European standards, and they may think they're living up to international standards, but really the global standard is from the UN. And the United States has called on all its companies in its operations domestically and abroad to respect the minimum human rights standards in UN human rights instruments. Um, and again, as I mentioned, because these companies often have an incentive to globalize their rules, if one region forces them or incentivizes them to lower their protections for speech, that can affect their rules that apply to everyone in the world. So I think that's why it's very important to keep clear you know, the difference between European regional approaches to speech and global uh, minimum protections for speech. Thank you. Matthew or Matt, anything to, to add to that? Recently coming out with the Digital Surface Act and the Online Safety Bill that kind of go beyond that picture Evans having as well, which is the first is, is that they are going from uh, regulating illegal content to to in varying ways and to varying degrees regulating content that isn't illegal right sort of so requiring platform platforms to whether it's sort of specifically for young people or more, or more generally uh requiring them to regulate activity that is 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 harmful i think the second is that they're not just kind of enlisting platforms to um take action on certain kinds of content which they have deemed illegal or indeed deemed harmful it's requiring platforms to go out there and do their own analysis uh, of the risks that they are create that they, that content is creating on their platform the eu calls this systemic risk uh, the uk is requiring risk assessments and then acts to mitigate that so it's it's so in terms of kind of enlisting um these platforms to be the sensors it goes further than sort of saying, okay, here's what we want you to censor. It's we want you to come up with strategy to um, uh, sort of moderate content on your platform. And then we, you will give us a report, give us these transparency disclosures. You'll tell us about the complaints you're getting, et cetera. You'll have trusted flaggers in the sense of the EU. And we'll tell, you, we'll tell you under the threat of enormous fines, whether you're doing it well enough. And so I think it is, it's going a stage beyond just saying, here is these categories of content we think are illegal that should be controlled. It's saying, here are these broad categories of problem online that we want you to go out there and identify and then mitigate. If I could, uh, Jen, uh, jump in on, on that point. Um, I, I, everything Matt said is, is correct, uh, but I, I think uh, what what viewers should consider is that with legislation like the online safety bill, 
the the drafters unfortunately i think have overlooked a lot of the nuance that goes into content moderation uh so for example uh the the online safety bill outlines a whole host of legal content uh that firms will nonetheless have to uh consider in their content moderation uh, uh decision making but oftentimes it's about the content absent a lot of the context so for example bullying content well bullying content can be a video filmed by a student on a mobile phone that is shared around a social media site to humiliate the victim but the same video can be used by a bullying an anti-bullying charity to highlight um the kind of harms that they're trying to uh trying to mitigate through their work and what what i think is a problem is even if you do agree uh that there are a, a bunch of legal harmful pieces of content out there that the government should um to try to prevent children accessing um i would disagree with with a lot of that but let's take that as given nonetheless it, the, uh, one of the unintended consequences of this kind of legislation is that very helpful content that deals with difficult issues like eating disorders suicide uh that actually require a lot of nuance uh will be um will be hampered uh, and and that will affect americans because as we've said before um a lot of these um regulated companies will be american um and it's just too costly for uh even big big tech companies to dedicate so many resources just for very strict compliance uh in a relatively small island nation off the coast of europe you know when we talk about a lot of these issues we talk about the impact they will have on on large companies on on folks that people think of as kind of these global tech giants but we're also seeing that in many cases laws like the GDPR we know has had an impact on startups and small and micro companies um i'm going to combine my last question with a a question from from Jake in our audience which is how will US startups react to kind of these looming threats of regulation and particularly startups that may be rapidly growing you know what are the impacts not only on large tech companies of this kind of emerging more regulatory um conversation in Europe but what might we expect from some of the smaller players as well I mean I mean I think the the sort of the, the first thing every start sort of particularly sort of as you say fast scaling startups going to think about is is my service is my business model durable to what this regulation would require if I succeed if I succeed um so it will you be able to as your platform grows accommodate the requirements for interoperability um between messaging services um uh, just to give give one give one sort of uh, very specific example from the digital markets act because what that's kind of doing that 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 um interoperability requirement it's not just it's it's saying that it, it, you you need to be able these services need to be able to interact with one another but what that does in practice is it requires them to standardize and so what it does in practice i think is it makes it harder for platforms to differentiate themselves and if you're asking how can a fast scaling what 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 will a fast scaling business be thinking about so okay so what extent are we going to be forced into a kind of one size fits all policy where we have to build our platform kind of the same way as everyone else because they all have to be interoperable they all have to meet uh you know a lot of the same requirements for kind of how they treat content it is going to make digital services a bit more samey it kind of happens inevitably when you have this kind of degree of regulatory uh intervention they've also got a plan for a lot of cost and i think that's where gdpr is the is is the kind of canonical example here yes the you know, the requirements here do scale with the scale of the platform but that's not entirely true you know the online safety bill uh, i think in particular in the uk uh will be costly for all kinds of uh platforms that aren't you know giants right um and i think a final area is it will affect the digital platforms they interact with right it might change the services that they use as business users um and affect the ability of those digital platforms to do deals with them to interact with them in various ways that are part of how they grow so i think startups are going to have to think about this as strat you know deep strategy level like how is this going to shape our ability to build a distinctive platform um at a global scale 
Uh, and I think you're going to think about that both in context of context, current regulation, but also to our earlier discussion, what happens if these EU and UK rules start to become a global norm? Yeah, Jen, I don't know if um, I could quickly add that yeah. uh, if, if it's an American startup, um, well, the, the online safety bill says that to be in scope, you have to have a significant number of British users or uh, the UK has to be a target market for uh, your service. So if you want to avoid its regulations, you can either um, just not do, make sure you don't have a significant number of British users or don't target uh, the UK um, for your services, uh, which would be unfortunate, uh, I think, for, for British uh, consumers. But uh, more to the point, though, I think it, it would empower uh, large market incumbents that do feel as if they can uh, weather the regulatory storm uh the 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 fact is that although the the big silicon valley giants always get mentioned in these discussions we should remember that that legislation like the online safety bill is going to affect tens of thousands of services many of which have nothing to do uh with social media uh so and that i think is where we'll see many of the unintended consequences to turn to some of those questions around unintended consequences we we have an anonymous audience question um, about encryption um, and about the impact particularly that the uk online safety bill could have on encryption and what some of the unintended consequences there might be we've seen already that um, certain companies such as certain meta apps and signal have threatened to leave the uk if this bill becomes law what does the reality of, of something like this look like? How should policymakers be aware of, of what these consequences could be in terms of the ability, uh, in terms of the availability of, of certain services um, in certain markets? And, and is this something you think we, we might see more of? We've seen, you know, consequences from Canada's C-18 regarding journalism, um, do you think that we will will see this action continue on if the online safety bill becomes law? Um, I'm happy to talk about the the encryption part of the question. Uh, so, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the online safety bill would empower uh, Ofcom, which I guess broadly speaking is the the, the American equivalent of the FCC. Um, to issue notices um, to particular services, um, asking them to use uh, accredited technology to scan uh, private messages for uh, child sexual exploitation and abuse material. Uh, now, although uh, social media is often discussed in the context of the online safety bill, services like Signal and WhatsApp encrypted messaging services are covered under the bill. And the use of the two words, you know, private messages has been freaking uh, a lot of these services out for understandable reasons. If you are enabling end-to-end -end encryption, uh, you, the service, cannot scan messages for, for that kind of content. Uh, and I, I think, you know, WhatsApp and Signal have taken a principled stand saying that they would, uh, well, haven't said it explicitly, but have hinted very strongly that they would rather um, exit the UK market rather than weaken their own uh uh security measures uh it would be possible for them to uh do that in the uk narrowly i i wouldn't worry if i was for example an american whatsapp user about the uh the online safety bill but depending on how whatsapp goes about a british uh exit it could be pretty um pretty devastating something um that i think a lot of americans don't um appreciate because it's not as, as widely used but uh, WhatsApp is is ubiquitous uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, it is um, how government ministers communicate. It's how civil servants talk to each other. It's um, how businesses run. It's it's everywhere, and uh, people all around the world communicate with British citizens um, as well. So it would, it would be would be pretty devastating. Uh, it's been very frustrating because uh, literally hundreds of uh, cryptographers and computer science and policy analysts have been telling the government that this is. Um, this is a mess, but uh, the latest version of the bill, which um, is expected to pass uh, in a few weeks, still includes it. Uh, so we're, we're sort of in uncharted territory here. Uh, uh, there's still time for the government to, to fix it, but uh, I haven't um, seen any suggestion that they're going to, to seriously do it. And 
Yeah, second half of your question was about the media sector, right? So what uh, this really starts in Australia. So the news media bargaining code in Australia basically says that uh, any digital platform that broadly speaking links to news has to do a deal with the news media groups to pay them. Um, it's um, what that's obviously looks pretty attractive politically to a lot of governments because they're sitting there thinking, well, this is a way we can reward a politically important local stakeholder at the expense, uh, at least it, it, you know, in, in, in immediate terms, of a big American company. And so it's spread like wildfire. So you get this in Canada, then you get this in, um, it, you get then you get it achieved by a different route in the EU and the UK. So both the EU and the UK say that um, platforms need to do business with, on fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms. But you know what is fair and non reasonable non-discriminatory is going to be settled by the regulator kind of implicitly assumes that there's some kind of price paid and um they're going to make it difficult for platforms to walk away from that deal uh, it looks like they so and so i think the you know the huge risk here is that what these laws are doing under the kind of um cloak of being a competition measure is they're establishing a mechanism to reward almost any uh, sort of vested interest by saying, you know, the digital platforms need to give you internet money. Um, and it's, um, you know, the reality is, you know, this is money, this, this is going to sh probably shift the terms against possibly consumers, possibly advertisers, um, and it becomes a kind of form of digital tax. Um, but I think because of the way it's been done, it hasn't aroused kind of US opposition the way outright digital services taxes have. Um, uh, but it is in many functional ways. It's taxing, you know, Google or Facebook to give some money to News Corp uh, or uh, other media groups. Um, it's just being done in through via regulation uh, and via regulators uh, with more or less kind of parliamentary involvement, depending on which country you're looking at. So we have time for one more audience question, and I'm going to, to pull Alex's question, which is about the EU's recent mandate on USB-C charging ports and the anticipated mandate on replaceable batteries for personal electronics. I, I think the his specific question is, how can we expect these regulatory measures to affect the design choices of US manufacturers, but more generally, what are some of these other kind of topics that we're seeing the, the EU give very prescriptive regulations on that your average American consumer may not be aware of? So the, it's where you see some degree of consumer frustration, right? So look, is there some degree of consumer frustration out there about sort of Apple having its own charging standard? Sure. Is there some degree of complaint from people who from sort of third party manufacturers? Absolutely. But what this, of course, does is it again enforces standardization. And so it's, it's going to mean that future progress in charging tech is going to be done a lot more by committee. I don't want to oversimplify, yeah, it's a simplification, but it is going to stand, you know, they are going to increasingly get involved in this and other areas and make it a more bureaucratic process to build new services. And the really big example of this that is coming, you know, down the road uh, is AI regulation. Um, you know, having, a, you know, to, to, to be in a world where uh, you have a whole, um, you have, process required in companies to decide it are our ai systems high risk or not uh, but then also for peaks of platforms developing ai services for other companies to use um, are we providing the tools necessary for our customers who might be providing what are deemed to be high risk services this is things like you know credit checks um uh, things like facial recognition biometric checks like if we're doing that, if our service is being used in that way, we again, we've got these layers of requirements. They're going to sit on these, uh, what they're called foundational AI models. And so there's, there's a whole range of areas like this where additional, where it's almost become um, 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 a much more kind of creating this bureaucratic process for technological change. And at the same time, every problem under the sun, you include, uh, so, you know, if people are eating too much fatty food, 
you start regulating the digital advertising market. It's becoming this kind of first force of call for all kinds of other policy objectives is start regulating tech companies. And that's going to mean that, that, that global companies, of, including American companies, are going to be enlisted in more and more attempts at policy change, all of which is going to distract them more and more from their core business, I suspect. Matthew or Evelyn, anything to, to add? Great. Well, we're running towards the, the end of our, our session here, and I, I do want to give you each kind of a, a question to, to close us out on, which is the permissionless approach to technology has often been credited with helping the U.S. to really be a leader, particularly in the information technology space. And when you think of many of the, the digital platforms, these are American companies that first come to mind. So I guess my kind of closing question to each of you is, is there a Brussels effect that may negatively impact the benefits of this approach? And if so, how should American consumers, innovators, and policymakers think about the impact that European and UK technology policies are having on these American companies? And Matthew, you're you're first on my screen, so so I'm going to go to to you first. Um, I I would just uh, you know, ask policymakers uh, to consider that uh, while you you might be dealing with very specific problems within your own jurisdiction, that uh, for for many many companies, your legislation will be. Uh, what they have to adapt to. Uh, so it's all well and good for the for a British MP to say, look, you know, we, we have jurisdiction in the UK and we're trying to protect British children, so we're going to uh, ensure that these companies act in a certain way. But they should consider, I mean, two things. One is that many of these companies will feel like they're forced to adopt that sort of standard um, wherever they operate in order to, to save costs. But they should also consider, as was alluded to earlier, that uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, less free governments will use um, how free countries act as an excuse for some rather uh, nefarious activities. Uh, so I, I think both of those should be considered. Uh, from a sort of policy analyst um, uh, bird's eye view, um, I, I would just uh, urge people to remember that a lot of the diamondism that, that we saw in, in the internet was in part a, a feature of the fact that it was, as you know, Adam Thier would say, you know, born free. Um, when we think about what, what some call, you know, the, the, the stagnation of technology these days, a lot of it is in, uh, in uh, buildings or infrastructure or um, engineering where there, there is a, a significant regulatory regime governing yeah, cars and, and drones and airplanes and these and infrastructure, these sort of things. Uh, so I think the lesson is, you know, uh, that, that, that while there are problems to, to deal with, we should keep in mind uh, the global effects, but also um, consider how uh, they will be, um, they'll be used by uh, governments around the world. And also remember that um, permissionless innovation has um, served us quite well in the past and shouldn't be chucked out uh, too, too quickly. Evelyn, your, your thoughts on this from a, from a free speech perspective, what should Americans be, be aware of? Yeah, um, I guess, my advice to companies would be to um, obviously know that, you know, uh, there's a lot of regulation coming down the pike, both in Europe and throughout the world that uh, will affect freedom of expression. And um, my recommendation is to espouse the, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, which call on companies to um, resist when they are giving um, rules or pressure that uh, is seeking to undermine freedom of expression. There are multi-stakeholder initiatives dedicated to this, like the Global Network Initiative, and many companies like Google and Microsoft participate in it to work with NGOs and others to resist this type of pressure when um, laws that impede basic freedom of expression norms uh, are in sight to be passed or are passed. Um, and I hope that companies will also use kind of these these basic human rights protections for free expression to regulate their own approaches uh, to the extent they have um, rules on, on freedom of expression too. I think by linking themselves to these, these global rules and not falling into 
the trap of thinking that regional approaches are the same thing as the global minimum standards. I mean, for Americans, I think we need to think, you know, very cautiously that these, these basic protections on freedom of expression were negotiated by Eleanor Roosevelt um, to provide minimum standards throughout the world. And companies should not abandon that lightly. They have a principled basis on which to resist some of this legislation. So that's my advice. And Matt, finally to, to you. Yeah, look, I'd say if you look at the story of how so many kind of great digital services come to be, it's chasing big global opportunities in a really focused, energetic way. And I think that what really worries me is that um, that's going to become less and less the case. We're going to be in a world where um, those big global opportunities will be much more complex and much more bureaucratic because there's going to be so many regulatory uh, hoops to jump through. Uh, and also that the leaders who should be building these digital services are instead going to be focused on being a regulated industry and regulatory engagement and um, navigating, uh, you know, the minefield that comes with these regulations with huge potential fines attached, sometimes even like personal um, legal risk for the officers in these company, companies. Um, and I think that all that is going to change the culture of American tech in a way, in ways which will make it less risk making it less dynamic. And so I think U.S. policymakers should be pushing back. I think it does have an effect when they do that. And that sense that um, you know there's a kind of bipartisan um, interest in squelching tech, I think, is part of why this has happened to the extent it has in Europe. But honestly, it's certainly not the only factor, right? But I think it has played its part. Uh, and I think it is there is just a responsibility on U.S. companies and U.S. Uh, policymakers to push back because, you know, what starts in, in Australia will go to Europe and the U.K. What starts in the U.K. will go to Europe and will go. And then all of this will spill out into the less developed economies, which tend to uh, sort of follow um, these kind of uh, more developed uh, regulatory environments. Well, thank you all. You know, we've had a, a quite a wide ranging discussion today, and I know there are even more topics we could get to. I want to thank our panelists for joining me this afternoon and also thank all of our, our audience attendees for tuning in to today's event. We had a lot of great questions come in, and I apologize that we could not get to all of them. Uh, for those of you who may not have been able to attend live or, or may want to look back at some of the conversation that we had, a video recording of this event will be available on Cato's website. Thank you so much for, for tuning in and for being part of today's conversation.